Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Good morning, everyone. So in, I'm from Tyler, Texas, and uh, I get to lead a, a Christ-centered multi-ethnic ministry there. And some of my staff would say, we just had church up in here. That's how they would say about that. Cece, I think, is her name. Man, I don't know about you, but when she sings, I can just close my eyes and just let her sing over me. It's just rich. I, yeah, absolutely. I told Mike, I said, you know, the first service, I was watching the bass player the first song because he's just kind of catching a groove. And then all of a sudden, like the third or fourth song happened, and that instrument back there that I called a xylophone that I soon realized, he's like, That's, it's called the vibes. Have you ever seen a solo on vibes with two sticks in each hand? That's, yeah, seriously. Anyway, hey, uh, my wife Stephanie and I are here this morning with you. We have uh, six kids at home, uh, five of our own, three are natural, two are supernatural through adoption, Uh, and then we have a foster son who's six months at our house right now. So we have 11, 10, 8, 7, 6, and six months. So whenever I go speak at a church uh, and my wife's with me, we call it vacation, Right? (laughs) The fact that I can tell you I'm from Tyler, Texas, I have proof because during the first service, uh, my wife's phone rang and uh, she let it go to voicemail and, and it, we realized it was uh, somebody from our house calling and so she's like, I better step out and go see what this is. And it was my 10-year-old son saying, hey, Dad, our, we have a dog, it's a hunting dog called Avishla. She said, scout uh, uh, his cornered a possum in our yard and I need to know if I should kill it. That's, we're from East Texas. That's what happens <laughs> in East Texas there, right? So uh, we won't tell you what the answer was there, but... It was a. <laughs> hey, Matt Cassidy's your pastor here, and what a neat guy. Um, as I told Matt, I said, Matt, I really hope that you're just able to relax Sunday because pastors do so much from preparation to teaching to teaching weekend and we got to handling all sorts of counseling type things, leadership of a staff. It's a very, very tough role. And so I hope this morning he's just resting. He's re- being rejuvenated. It is a bit uh, pressure-filled when somebody says, I'll just finished a fantastic series. And last Thursday he said, you're about to start a fantastic series. And then there's me in between. So, <laughs> hey. So Friday I was talking to Matt. Anytime I go speak at a church, I like to just look online and watch some of their sermons to kind of just get a feel for the culture there. I was here last about a year and a half ago. Um, and I told Matt on Friday at last, I said, Matt, you threw me for a loop. Uh, I click on the, 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 the sermon two weeks ago, and then this guy appears. Now, I told Matt, I said, I had no idea you invited the Incredible Hulk to come speak at Grace Covenant because I'm like looking at this guy, and he's like, he's just mean. You might have been here two or three weeks ago, and he's like, war is hell. It's evil. And I'm like, what has happened at Grace Covenant? Like, why have they asked me to come back there? I could, this guy would strangle me or something. So anyway, I watched for the next three minutes and then realized it's some TED talk that apparently he's playing a clip of. I was like, whew. So I told Matt, I said, you just need to know you threw me for a loop as I got ready to come here. Hey, if you would, open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you would. Um, we're going to be in there this morning. As I mentioned here a second ago, I, my wife and I are from Tyler. I lead a ministry there called the Mentoring Alliance, uh, which seeks to mobilize godly people uh, into the lives of kids and families to provide what we say tangible help and eternal hope. So I have the privilege of working with a whole lot of different churches to try to get godly people to be the heroes in communities that God has called us to be, 
by stepping into the lives of kids from really challenging circumstances. So I'll tell you a little bit about that this morning. As I got on your website here uh, with Grace Covenant, I saw this tagline that just jumped off the, the website to me. It says this, that Grace Covenant is a church transformed by grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. And I was like, man, that, that just sums it up right there. As I talked to Matt about it, he said, yeah, you know what we mean by transformed by grace? We don't just mean like from the point when you go from death to life, when you trust Christ and begin to follow him. We mean like an ongoing transformed by grace, day after day after day after day, transformed by grace. And so my prayer as I prepared for this morning was, man, that God might do a bit of his transforming work in your hearts and minds through his grace this morning as we dig into 2 Corinthians chapter 5. As a matter about that, just so you'll know, Paul wrote this letter called 2 Corinthians. He wrote about 13 letters in the New Testament, this guy named Paul did. Um, some of the letters were to churches in cities. It would be like the church in Austin, the church in Tyler. This one was to the church in Corinth. And so some of Paul's letters were uh, a church that he had been with, that he had spent time with, that he had taught them, and he had pastored them. And then he leaves, then he hears something going on at the church, and he writes them a letter. And what Paul had heard about this church in Corinth was that this church had become corrupt. So he wrote this letter to admonish them, to provoke them, and to instruct them about who God is, who they are, and what God has called them to be. So as we start walking through those passages together, we need to remember and, and just understand this letter wasn't written to us. It was written to the church in Corinth, but it was written for us. There are lessons that we can learn. This passage is a rich text of Scripture. We're going to kind of pop through this morning, but there is so much that God can show us in the midst of this section of Scripture. So we're going to just point out about three things here this morning. So let's, let's begin by reading the first couple of verses here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14 says this, for, for if we are beside ourselves, Paul says, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. You know, when you think about your tagline, that mission statement that I mentioned, that what would it be like if a church like Grace really lived that out in a community, in a city like Austin? Well, that's what Paul's talking about here. And what he starts off by saying is, look, if you think I'm crazy, he says, if you think that we're beside ourselves, guess what? It's true. He said, I'll tell you why it's true is I'm motivated by the love that God, of God that, that I've received. And so the first thing we can see this morning is that we have a new motivation. The psalm that Mike read over us in the, as we went through the worship time here talked about that God, God delights in us. I mean, I don't know about you, but for me, when I've had those moments in life where I just get a little bit more of a taste of his grace, I'm like, man, is, it, is that true? It just blows me away. Part of my testimony, I came to know Christ as a 12-year-old. I was in a Bible study led by a guy named Booger. That's what everybody called him, so I did too. That's all I know about him. But <clears throat> prayed to trust Christ one night. I kind of let it lie for a few years. And when I was 16, a guy saw me in the hallway and said, hey, I want to hang out with you. I was like, sure. Who are you? Come to find out, by the way, this guy and his wife went to church here for years. His name was Mike Madry, Mike and Libba Madry. We were in Baton Rouge at the time, and he really began to disciple me and show me what a relationship with Christ looked like. And what I saw in Mike, his willingness on young life staff that he was, was to say, you know what, I'm going to be a crazy guy and go hang out at a high school because, man, I just, 
I am motivated by something that's otherworldly here. And I knew that about him. I saw it in his life day in and day out. So Paul says, you know what? Here's the thing. He's teaching us that the energy to get up and go on as a Christian is one who works for the gospel, therefore comes not from a cold sense of duty or obligation, but he's saying this work, it doesn't come from fear. It, it comes from this warm-hearted response to the love which, that God reached out to us. He reached down to us, and he actually reached us. He said it's just a response to that, Paul tells us. It's a new motivation. The world says that that type of thinking is crazy. This is what Paul begins this section defending. If, if you think I'm crazy, sure. So let me ask us as a church, myself included, when was the last time somebody thought we were crazy because of our faith in Christ? When was the last time somebody looked at our lives and said, that doesn't make sense? When was the last time somebody looked at our C.S. Lewis says this, if you want to know if you're living like a disciple in terms of generosity, two things will be true. One, what you give away will scare you. And two, people will question your sanity. Right? What if we were a people that said, man, God, I've been so moved by your love for me. I've been so transformed by your grace. I'm just blown away that you delight in me. I just can't help it but just overflow with goodness and richness and generosity to people around me. There was a guy I had lunch with years ago named Fred. He was an elderly guy in Tyler. He's since passed away. And as we were at lunch, he could barely talk. He was uh, not doing well with his health. And <clears throat> he told me over lunch, he said, Kevin, I have seven rules of tipping. And I was like, well, that's fascinating. Okay. Do you? And he spouted off seven rules and just one by one nailed them to me. So I was thinking like, man, you really have these, I mean, you really aren't just making these up. You actually have these rules. And he said, yeah, yeah. So years later at his funeral, I was talking to people and they all knew his rules. So there we are at lunch, sitting in a place in Tyler. And the bill comes, and he already walked me through these rules, and the bill, I remember, was $49. And he said, Kevin, we have a problem. And I, what's, I said, what's that? He said, my rule number five was you never tip more than 100%. And my rule number six is you never break 100. So he said, I have a dilemma here. What do I do? Which rule do I break? And I was like, this guy's for real. Like, he really has rules. And I said, Fred, you tell me. He said, I think I'll break rule number five. And he laid out a $100 bill on the table. You see, he was so moved by the love that God had for him. He was a wealthy individual, and he was just generous financially, generous with his time, generous with board service as a, as a successful businessman. You see, guys like Fred and guys like many of us in this room were so captivated by God's love for us that we're so then committed to let his love flow through us. Paul continues on. He says, for Christ's love compels us, or depending on your translation, constrains us or controls us. He says that the love that Christ has for me pushes me forward. It motivates me to action. It compels me to do something. Why, he says, because we're convinced, or we have concluded in another translation, that one died for all, and therefore all have died. Well, that's interesting. That's like a theological statement here. So think about this. While belief in God today is almost universal, much of the world stumbles over what to do with this man named Jesus. You know, they might, they might admire his kind of pithy statements. They might recognize him as a martyr for something significant. But the lifeblood of the gospel courses from the central truth that Christ God became one with the human race, that he died for all, and that his resurrection breaks the stranglehold of death. 
So how many people are covered by this all Paul talks about here? Well, throughout the scriptures, we see it consistently. The all would encompass all of humanity. But as he says there, hey, look, one died for all, therefore all died. It's not a statement of universalism that just because Christ died for everybody, everybody's good. You see, some people actually reject that finished work that he's done. Paul's making the point that the benefits of Christ's death are not limited to his fellow Jews, but they extend boundaries like male and female to Jew and Gentile. And this, this work is, is open to many people, but, but many people stubbornly refuse this work that, that God in Christ has done for us. So consequently, only believers profit from Christ's death. Let's keep reading here, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15 and 16. And he died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though once we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So Paul's saying the believer takes what they've earned and they bestow it on somebody else. He says the benefit of my success, the benefit of my talent, it's not, it's not for me, but it's for a lost world. <clears throat> it's an ongoing theme through Scripture. In Genesis chapter 12, we see God interacting with a guy named Abram, and he tells him his plan. You see, Genesis 1 through 12, we see kind of the world just riddled with sin and bad things happening all the time. And then Genesis 12 happened, and God brings this guy Abram outside. He says, here's my plan. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. You see, even with Abram, God's plan was to so bless his socks off that blessing then benefited other people. In Exodus chapter 19, God says to Moses, here's what I'm going to do with these people, the Israelites. I'm going to make them a kingdom of priests, it says. Meaning for us as his people that he's going to use us to connect people back to God. That's God's plan throughout all of Scripture here. So when we think about that, it gives us a new perspective. Now my life revolves around his purposes, not mine. We no longer regard people from a worldly point of view. I don't know about you. I, I've looked at people all different ways. I, I measure them up for all different reasons, based on the car they drive, you know, how high up the corporate ladder they are, the, the way they talk, their education, whatever those things are. But Paul says, you know what? I, I used to look at people like that as well. In fact, I looked at Jesus the same way. I was kind of sizing him up through fleshly standards. But he says, you know what? I don't, I don't do that anymore. Now, now he says, you know, I see them, I see them as dead people in desperate need of Jesus. I see them as hurting, he tells us. For the last few years, one of the ministries that's part of the Mentoring Alliance that we have is called Gospel Village. It's a mentoring ministry where we connect godly people from churches to mentor kids from really challenging circumstances. So for a few years now, I've been able to walk life with this little boy named Katrin. Now, this boy Katrin, young African-American boy, he's failed a third grade. He uh, assaulted his teacher and his principal, so he eventually got kicked out of his school, put into a different elementary school in our community. And I'll tell you, at times, from what I hear from his teacher, principal, he, he's an annoying little rascal of a guy, right? At times with me and my family, I tell you, he's an annoying little guy at times. But as I got to know his grandmother who's raising him, as I walked into their house built by Habitat for Humanity, and as I was bringing him home from soccer practice one time after he put him on our team with our sons, and he heard my son say to me, Dad, what's for dinner tonight? And Katrin said, y'all eat dinner? And I said, well, yeah, Katrin, you've been to our house for lunch. We do the same thing just at nighttime. It's called dinner. You do that, right? He's like, no. 
He said, sometimes at night I'll eat a popsicle or like a Pop-Tart in the pantry or something like that. And, and I was blown away. You see, all of a sudden my eyes start seeing Katrin differently. I didn't see him as an annoying little guy who, through our world standard, says we'll be in jail in the next five years or so. I saw him as a guy who's hurting, who's growing up in such tough scenarios and who desperately needs to be reconnected to God himself. I saw him with new eyes, and that's what Paul describes here. So if we put together what Paul has learned about other people and what he's learned about the Messiah, what do we get? Verse 17, one of the greatest summaries of what Christianity is all about. My very first memory verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If that verse isn't underlined in your Bible, I would encourage you to do that. This verse has such deep significance for our life. What we realize is we don't just have a new motivation. But we actually have a new life. I told the first service I grew up Baptist, and so I was trying to make all the words be an M word, but I could not come up with another one for this one. And so I lamented, and then a guy came up to me after. He said, you should have said a new me. So all the slide says a new life. What I meant to say was a new me. See, now it's the second of M's. We'll hit a third M here in a minute. But, so we have a new motivation. We have a new life or a new me. Being a new creation doesn't mean that we're perfect. Sometimes people can confuse that. Are you saying you're perfect? No, it doesn't mean that we're perfect. But it does mean that we've been changed and that we're being changed. And this is something that only God alone can do in us and for us. In other words, it's not just turning over a new leaf. It's receiving new life. You see, what if believers actually got out of the, the gerbil wheel of life of thinking, you know what, I think God's like pleasing me to a seven today because I've come to church like three weeks in a row. And I read my Bible once on my own, and I even prayed before my meal. So I think I'm probably at a seven, but I know God. I should be doing this, and I should be doing this. If we actually believe what the Bible says about us is we had perfect church attendance, and if we prayed all day every day, and if we did all these great things, our performance merited us a zero out of ten. But God's performance through us, through his son Jesus, awards us a ten out of ten that cannot be diminished. So if we as Grace Covenant Church sat here today, and, and if we got anything from this message, if we said, God, you know what? Thank you that that old me is gone. Lord, thank you that you love me, that you accept me, that you're pleased with me. I always tell the story years ago, I used to work at Pine Cove, great place, ministry, camp ministry. And I got to teach all of our summer staff, about 1,500 of them at the time, for a few different days. And I'd always start off my few days with them by bringing my kids up on stage with me. I'd say, hey, I want you to meet all my kids. And so I would ask them in front of them, everybody, I'd say, hey, Walker, my oldest son, hey, do you know that I love you, son? And he'd say, yeah, and all these college kids listening. I was like, why do I love you? And he would say it, because I'm your son. That's right. No other reason. Hey, Miller, my second son. Miller, come on up here. And he had fun with Miller. Hey, Miller, do you know that I love you? That's right. You know why I love you? Because I'm your son. And I go to my daughter, Madri, my daughter, Hannah, my son, Levi, one by one. And what I was amazed by is I'd look out in the crowd of 1,500 college staff from all over the country, and especially the guys would be crying. It was like, if we as men and women, but especially as men, if we really believe that God our Father was pleased with us because of what Jesus has done in us, man, it would, it would change everything. Well, that's what Paul's saying. 
We have this new life. The famous Baptist preacher and theologian of old, Charles Spurgeon, he said it this way, I know no language, I believe there is none, that can express a greater or more thorough and more radical renewal than that which is expressed in the term a new, crea- a new creature. So, man, let's, let's receive that this morning. The old has gone. The new has come. I have this life in Christ that I, I want to enjoy and I want to express to other people. Paul keeps going. Verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So we have a new motivation, a new me, or a new life. And now we have a new mission. Wow, that, that God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself. It's all the more amazing when we think about this, that, that before that Jesus died on the cross, before the veil was torn in two, before he says it is finished, that this, this amazing spiritual transaction took place, that the Father set upon the Son all the guilt and wrath our sin deserved, and Jesus bore it on himself perfectly, totally satisfying the justice of God for us. I liken it to this because we can get fused by this, confused by this in Scripture. We can begin to think, so Jesus sinned or he messed up? Like, no, no, Jesus was perfect. But our sin was placed on him. There's an old TV show called Dirty Jobs. You might have heard of it with a guy named Mike Rowe. And I feel like I always belonged on that show for one job that I had years ago. When I was in high school, I worked at a camp in Colorado for a summer. And I was on what was called the outdoor crew, and so a lot of my job was just working outdoors all the time, from mowing, weeding, all sorts of things. Well, one of the key things that I did, one of my most highest responsibilities, <coughs> excuse me, was taking care of this, these three septic ponds they had. Yeah, I'm with you there. Ugh, right? <coughs> they had one raw sewage pond, raw sewage, separated by a cinder brick wall with some netting that sewage would kind of eventually flow down into, and then the, it was chemically treated once there, and then it would flow through another series of nets and of cinder block walls into a third pond, chemically treated again, and it would eventually be sprinkled out into the, into the hillside there. So my job that summer, part of my great responsibility, was me and another guy had to get in a boat, like a John boat, a flat bottom boat. Me and this other guy with a trash can in between us with a pool skimmer net, and we would have to go and get the, the solids out of the raw septic pond because they would clog up the netting between the first pond and the second pond. And so my job then was to skim, kind of reel in the pole, and then dump it in the trash can in between he and I. So many days that summer we had this joke, like what would happen if we fell out of this boat? <clears throat> and like, you know, we would do one of those like, uh-huh, you know, you kind of wiggle the boat. Like, don't do that. Right? And we just kind of, joke with each other that way. But I mean, it was really, like, I mean, I remember telling him at one point, like seriously, if I fall in, I'm just going to the bottom and I'm never coming up. Like, I, I don't want to live through it. Like, I don't want to remember that. I don't want to be a part of this. As I was preparing for even this time here, funny enough, that, that memory popped to my mind is that, that in a sense is what Jesus did. Jesus had it dumped on him. He had our sin and our wrath, he, he had it placed on him. And he took that for us. 
And in return, the Bible tells us, he gave us his righteousness. So it's, it's not that I'm just better. It's not that I just score a higher grade because of my performance. Romans 5 tells us that he made us right. When I lead, the ministry that I lead now, we came up with a, mission, or a statement of faith five years ago, four years ago, and we put it in place, kind of board voted in, and a year later we came back to the statement of faith and we changed one word because I, I was so bothered by it. Like, we didn't get that one word right that we said that for all who had trusted in Christ as their Savior, that he called them righteous. But that's not what the Bible says. It says he made them righteous. So our, my board revoted and changed one word on our statement of faith because it's such a significant word for us. Jesus took our sin on him, and in return, he gave us his righteousness. So when God looks at us, he sees purity. That's why he can be pleased with us. Paul's telling them, man, when you realize that, this, this transaction that's taken place, it moves you. It doesn't just end with you, but it's intended to flow through you. Just like with Abram, I'm going to bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. So this church, Grace Covenant, as well as the church in general, has this most important mission of reconciling people to God. It's the most important work the church has. Sometimes as churches we can become distracted. Sometimes as ministries we can become distracted into other things. But make no mistake, apart from reconciliation to God, every other benefit is short-lived. We can help people just like we do. We can take care of their personal needs in some ways. We can address their social needs. But addressing their primary need is the most important thing. In fact, years ago when this organization wanted me to come in, they were at the time simply the Boys and Girls Clubs of East Texas. But they said, we want to be sharing the gospel with kids. So I said, That's, that sounds really fascinating. What if we connected the church, God's people, into this movement here in town? So I came on staff, and six months later, we became the first Boys and Girls Club in the whole country out of 4,000 locations to recharter with the state as a religious organization that does charitable educational work as a Boys and Girls Club. Then we merged into another ministry, and the Boys and Girls Club of America was like, we don't really know what to do with y'all. Like, I was like, well, who are the other Boys and Girls Club? Like, there are none others like this. But as I told them, look, we're not trying to be rule breakers. We're not trying to upset anything. We just believe this is the the most valuable thing that we have to offer these kids and families is the gospel of reconciliation. Apart from that, everything else we do is short-lived. So if we're going to keep our eye on the main thing, we need to be upfront and intentional about this, that we're about sharing the gospel of reconciliation with these kids and their families. Paul tells us, you know who you are? We're Christ's ambassadors. God making his appeal through us, he says. Paul reminds us of who we are and what it looks like for Christ to do his work through us, that, that we're ambassadors. So what do ambassadors do? Well, they, they represent their homeland or their king, and they communicate a message on behalf of their homeland. Our, as ambassadors, our message is simple, as Paul tells us here at the end of verse 20. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We implore you. It's as if Paul is saying, we beg you. It's as if God is saying to us, I beg you. Be reconnected to me. The idea of evangelism can scare us. I get it. The idea of sharing the gospel with somebody, your, your palms get sweaty. You're like, I don't, I don't even know what I'd say. It's kind of like trying to talk to your kids about the birds and the bees. I'm like, I, don't, I don't even know how to do this at all. That's how evangelism is for a lot of people. Well, I had this unique experience uh, right about a month before I came here last time, a year and a half ago. I was driving on Highway 79 outside of Buffalo. 
I was driving on the road, and this car had just, the driver had fallen asleep, veered off the road, and flipped a few different times. And I was one of those, like, came up on the wreck as the wheels in the car are still spinning type thing. Everything's strewn over the road, and I was like, oh, my word, what am I going to see? I pull over, I get out of my car, and there's this guy sitting in this tall grass off to the side, and he's just, like, in shock. And I was like, are you okay? We had this conversation. So let me call 911. I called 911, and I'm sitting here kind of like, is there anything I can do? And he's like, I think my collarbone is broken. My lungs don't feel right. I'm just, and he had like grass all over me. He smelled like the world in the sense of he was telling about his life as we sat there talking. And I said, can I help you in some way? He said, can you hold up my head? Like my neck is hurting me. So I tried to incorporate all my lifeguarding skills, you know, thinking I was in a pool. And I was like, okay, I'll put my forearm against his, his sternum right here. And I'll put my other forearm on his back. And so here I am on the side of Highway 79, my my head on the back of his, my hand on the back of his skull, on his jawbone, I'm just like a foot from his face, like, does this feel all right? And there we sat for about 20 minutes. So it's like, so what do you do in that moment? I'm like, you know you should be dead, right? And he said, yeah. I said, where are you from? He said, I'm, I'm from Austin. And I said, no way, I'm going to be in Austin, like in a month, speaking to this church there called Grace Covenant. He said, yeah, I've heard of Grace Covenant. And, well, he began to lament his life. And he said, man, I'm not living a good life, and I'm making bad decisions, and this, this, and that. And so there on the side of Highway 79, I began to implore him, be reconciled to God. At the end of our time, the EMT show up there, the ambulance, and like, okay, you can finish doing what you're doing because you're not really helping. So like, okay, thank you. And I remember I, <clears throat> I took out my card, and I, and I put it in his front shirt pocket. I said, look, you're probably not going to remember anything we just talked about because you're in shock, but feel free to email me or call me. I'd love to just hear what all's broken in you and how you're doing. And he called me a couple weeks later. And then cool enough, last time I was here, he came up to me after the service with just this big smile on his face. And it was such a rich reminder to me of the message that we have in our hearts to share with people. So as I told the first service, if, if, if you're that dude and you're back here today, come find me after the service. I'd love to see you. I'm hoping that you're still growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. But no wonder, no wonder why these Corinthians thought that Paul's work was hard to fathom. They thought he was crazy. He was behaving like someone who lived in a whole different world. So finally we see this verse, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what's called the doctrine of imputation. Uh, like I talked about, the fact that he input into us his righteousness, that he took our sin onto him, and he input that in, into, into us. How does he do it? They call it the great exchange, that God downloads all of his beauty into us. And we download all of our sin and the wrath that we deserve onto him. The result is that all those sins have been paid for. That God no longer holds them against us because we've trusted Christ as our Savior. But even more, that God put into our account the very righteousness of Christ. So here we sit today big group of people. What I know that I know is that some of y'all thought you came this morning on accident or by invitation from a friend or just going, I haven't been to church in a while. I feel like I ought to go today. Some of y'all might be here that have sat in church quite a while, but you still recognize I would still consider myself an unbeliever, one who's not enjoying a relationship with Christ, one who doesn't know him personally. So can I just end with y'all here for a second? Can I just tell you that when we see the concept of reconciliation in the Bible in reference to God, it's not a picture of God and man like, like two brothers who are fist fighting and they separate and the parent comes in and says, okay, 
Y'all make up. You know, quit being enemies. Be reconciled. That's not the biblical picture of reconciliation when it comes to God and man. The biblical picture of reconciliation when it comes to God and man is that man considers God an enemy, but God does not consider man an enemy. It's a one-way, to, one-way reconciliation that needs to happen. So what we see in Scripture is this idea of we need to be reconciled to God. See, the picture we have in Scripture, like the story of the prodigal son in the, in the book of Luke, is that here you have these sons, and the young one kind of goes away from home and squanders all of his stuff and lives this party lifestyle doing crazy things. And all of a sudden he wakes up one day, he's like, you know what, that I'm, I'm just living, I'm living so ignorantly. And he, the Bible says he recites this speech in his mind, like, I'm going to go home and say this to my dad. And, and then the Bible says, and, and while the son was a long way off, the dad sees him, and he runs to him. And he embraces him. He throws his coat around him. He puts a ring in his finger. And he says, kill the fatted calf. We're having a party. My son is coming home. You see, that's the picture of us being reconciled to God. Is it, It's not us enemies. God is waiting. Isaiah 65 says, when we weren't searching for him, that God sought us out. So you might be sitting here this morning going, yeah, I've, I've never really heard this. But can I just implore you this morning? Be reconciled to God today. How does that happen, you might ask? Last two verses I'll show you. Romans chapter 5, verses 10 and 11 says this. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. In other words, Paul says to this church in Rome, how do we get reconciliation? How do we become reconciled? He says, you receive it. Just like a Christmas present. If I gave you a Christmas present, you go, let me go write you a check for 25 bucks. I go, well, then it's no longer a gift. It's now, you've now paid me for it. Paul says to the church, no, no, no. Reconciliation is received. So here in a minute when we close in prayer to the unbelievers in here, I'd say, man, I, I encourage you, just tell God this morning you want to receive his reconciliation. You want to be reconnected. That You want to be, have your old life gone and your new one come. Just tell him that this morning as we end and to all of y'all that are believers here, that maybe you've been enjoying a rich relationship with Christ for years, can I maybe give you a different picture to think about, even as you leave church, that maybe instead of just thinking of, you know, going out to eat something like the same old, same old, that you would say, you know what, no, I realize today that I'm a follower of Jesus, cleverly disguised as school teacher, or I'm a follower of Jesus, cleverly disguised as a banker, or I'm a follower of Jesus cleverly disguised as an accountant, or whatever it is that you do, but you recognize, I'm a follower of Christ, and I've been given this clever disguise so that I can live out and share out this this gospel-filled message of reconciliation. So again, Paul tells this church in Corinth, you know what, if you think I'm crazy, it's true, because I have this new motivation I recognize that God delights in me as we read out of Psalm 18. He says, I, I don't just have a new motivation. I, I have a new me. I have a new life. But that old man is gone. The new one's come. And he says, but I also recognize I have a new mission. So Grace Covenant, as we leave here today, embrace the fact that we've been called and made to be ambassadors of his. As we go out to restaurants, be generous. wish I knew all seven rules of tipping, but I don't. But be generous. Love your in-laws. Love your neighbors. Be used by God as ambassadors of reconciliation. Let me pray for us. 
Father, thank you for uh, this rich time this morning, this, this church. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word that we get to see this letter written 2,000 years ago to a church that we don't know, but, Lord, we can learn from it today. Father, I pray over this room, Lord, for those sitting in here that don't know you, I pray, Father, over them that they would be reconciled to you. Lord, that sitting where they are, they would just receive this gift of reconciliation. Father, for those of us who are enjoying our relationship with you, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand a little more deeply today the truth and the richness of the message of grace found in the gospel. That we might be transformed by that a little by little today again. But Lord, as we leave here, I pray for all of us, Lord, that we would be, we would be deemed crazy here in Austin. Because we have so been moved and compelled, motivated, because of the mission that you've given us. Lord, we ask this humbly together. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.